Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke 21 verses 5 through 38. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, uh, you will find these verses beginning on page 880. I'm going to be reading the entire passage, but our focus this morning, uh, contrary to what the bulletin insert says, our, our focus this morning is actually going to be on verses 29 through 33. And the, the reason that we are focusing on this particular paragraph is because we are resuming a study that we left off before Easter. If you have been here for a while, you know that we've been in Luke's Gospel for a while. I think the bulletin insert says this is our 146th sermon on the Gospel of Luke. So it's been a while. And it's actually our seventh sermon on this particular passage, a passage that is known as the Olivet Discourse. It is the last public teaching of, of Jesus' ministry. It's called the Olivet Discourse because Matthew and Mark tell us that when Jesus spoke these words, he was sitting upon the Mount of Olives. But of course, the Olivet Discourse doesn't tell us what it's about. We have to read it to find out. And as we read, we, we find out that, that Jesus' subject matter is the wrath of God. The, the coming day of God's wrath. A day that will be manifest in time with judgment upon Jerusalem. But a judgment that will be manifest at the end of time with a judgment upon all men. When we remember that this is Jesus' final public teaching, we may be surprised that, that Jesus chooses wrath as his subject. Why would he make that the subject of his last lecture, as it were? We, we tend to think that, that wrath is for the Old Testament God. Wrath is, is for the God who wiped out the Canaanites. Wrath is, is for the God who sent the ten plagues on Egypt. Jesus is more about love. And of course, Jesus is an expression and demonstration of God's Love. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 that God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ is the embodiment and the, the, the manifestation, the demonstration of God's love for sinners. John says the same thing. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Here's where we see it. Here's how we know what the love of God is. We see the love of God in this, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And so, yes, Jesus is the, the expression and the, the demonstration of God's love. But when you read the Gospels, you quickly discover that he also has a lot to say about God's wrath. In fact, according to Jesus, the two cannot be separated. They, they are inseparably joined together first because God's love is actually the foundation of his wrath. It's because God loves that he has wrath. Think about it. When you don't care, you don't care. You don't care what happens to those things that, that you don't love, that you don't really care about. But if something that you love, something that you cherish, something close to your heart, if it is threatened or if it is harmed, 
That is when your wrath is kindled. So it is with God. It is His love that kindles His wrath. Well, there's another connection between the two as well because it's not only that, that God's love is the foundation of His wrath, but it is God's wrath from which God's love saves us. God loves us and He saves us. What is it that He is saving us from? He is saving us from His own wrath. It is His wrath that makes the sending of the Son good news. Yes, it, it may have been nice if Jesus had come to be among us, if there was no wrath. It would have been nice to have that, that fellowship and that communion that, that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden when God walked with them in the cool of the day. But it is His wrath that makes Jesus coming good news. For Jesus comes not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many, to, to save us from the wrath that is justly due to us for our sins. And so, we, we see that, that Jesus has a lot to say about the wrath of God. He has a lot to say about the, the coming judgment of God. Because he knows more deeply than any the truth of God's love. And so if we would understand God's love, we must first understand his wrath. And if we would understand his wrath, we need to hear what Jesus has to say to us in this discourse. So let us read it together. Luke chapter 21, beginning at verse 5. This is the very word of God. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And I asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first. But the end will not be at once. Then he said that the nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish by your endurance. You will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. 
Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding at what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, and early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for God's blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, we do come before you now, humbly asking for your grace asking that you would attend to the preaching of your word here this morning, that according to your promise you would not allow it to return void, but that you would cause it to bring forth fruit in our lives. Father, may those who do not know you be granted repentance unto life. And may those who are your disciples be strengthened to grow up in their salvation. Father, this we ask boldly in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and for his name's sake. Amen. Trust me. You ever had anyone say those words to you? I suspect at some point, you probably have. At some point, someone saw doubt or, or fear or anxiety or confusion on your face, and they, they said to you simply, trust me. Now, it might have been something trivial. I can remember when I was learning to play golf in my an instructor wanted to change my grip, and all of a sudden I couldn't hit the ball anywhere close to how I wanted to hit it. He, he looked at me and he said, listen, trust me. You're going to be worse for a while, but eventually this will make you better. It might be something you say to your kids about jumping into the pool. You know that you want to set them free to, to have fun. You want them to, to be free to enjoy the pool. And so you say, trust me, just jump. I'll catch you. We say it about trivial things. We sometimes say it about more serious things. Think of a doctor saying to you in his office, trust me. He's just told you that he needs to 
use a knife to cut open your body to make you better. That doesn't make much sense. It makes us anxious. It makes us it's fearful. Or he's told you that he needs to pump your body full of, of poison in order to cure you. It doesn't make sense. We, we need to trust him. And he says, listen, trust me. I know what I'm talking about. We hear it about trivial things. We hear it about more serious things. And in effect, here in verses 29 through 33, it's what Jesus is saying to each of us. He's saying, trust me. And he's not talking about trivial things. He's not even talking about serious things. He is talking about the most serious matter there can be. He is talking about our eternal lives. Remember the, the context. I, I said Jesus is talking about the coming wrath of God, but let me remind you of some of the particulars since it's been a while since we looked at this text. You remember from the, the beginning that Jesus is in Jerusalem where he arrived on Palm Sunday, a week before he would be betrayed and crucified. And he has been teaching in Jerusalem all week. And so his, temp his disciples have had an opportunity to, to see the temple. And as they stand near it one day, they are admiring it. And, and rightly so. It was an impressive building. It was built with, with massive stones. And it was adorned with so much gold that the historians tell us you could not look directly at it in the noonday sun for the glare was so blinding. It's often considered one of the eight wonders of the ancient World And so they stand there admiring this great building. And as they do so, Jesus says to them something that must have, must have been shocking. It must have taken them completely off guard. He says to them, the day is coming when not one stone here will be left upon another. He says the day is coming when this temple and the city in which it resides will be destroyed. Naturally, the disciples want to know when this will take place, and they, and they want to know what are the, the signs when this is about to happen. And it is this question that sets the stage for, for Jesus' discourse. And it's actually this question that Jesus is answering in the first part of this discourse. He, he tells them there will be wars and tumults, but the end will not come at once. There's going to be an interim before this happens. And, and his disciples have a mission. They have, they have a job to do in that interim. They are to bear witness to him. A mission that will not always be well received. They will be arrested. They will be dragged before the authorities. Some of them will even be put to death. But Jesus, he will be with them. He will give them words to say, and he will not allow even a hair of their head to perish. But eventually, the day will come when they will see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and that will be the day when they know that its desolation has come near. So this is the, the answer that Jesus gives to their question. But now look at the very end of verse 24. He says that Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles. But then he adds, until, until that day when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And in saying this, he introduces a second day, a, a day when the, the times of the Gentiles will be Fulfilled, and it is about that day, the, the day of, of fulfillment, that Jesus begins talking in verse 25. And he says, before that day, before that day of fulfillment, there will be signs and sun and moon. There will be perplexity on the earth. There will be people fainting with fear. The very heavens will be shaken. And then, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great 
glory. This is the day that unfolds, the, the day of which the, the judgment of Jerusalem looks forward. The judgment upon Jerusalem was but a foreshadow of the judgment that would come upon all the earth at the end of time. And Jesus is, is telling his disciples, he's telling the crowds that are listening in, he says, you need to know that this day is coming. You need to know that this day is coming because for the nations, for those who do not receive Jesus, for those who do not bow before him as their Lord and Savior, that day will be a day of judgment. It will be a day of vengeance. It will be a day of wrath. It will be a day when all the wrath of God, which has been held back by his grace in this time, will be unleashed. But also for his disciples, it will be a day of redemption and vindication. His disciples who continue to live in this fallen world, his disciples who, who continue to experience the misery of sin and death, on that day, they will know the promised comfort. And it's at this moment, having pointed them to that future day, a day of, of both judgment and consolation, a day of both vengeance and salvation, it is at this point that, that Jesus tells them this parable. This, this parable of the fig tree. And he says to them that, that when they see the leaves on the trees, they know. They, they know that the summer is near. And in the same way, when you see these signs, you know. You know that the kingdom of God is near. That that day is dawning. And it's at this point that he makes it about this generation saying that it will not pass away if all these things take place. Of course, he rests all of this upon the sure foundation of the word of God. My word is going to happen exactly as it says. It's really that last statement that I, I want to focus on first this morning because I do believe it's main point of this paragraph. The, the main point of this paragraph is the assurance that Jesus is giving us that everything he has told us about how the future is going to unfold is sure and certain. You heard it in our call to worship this morning. The, the prophet Isaiah was told to, to tell the people of Israel that the word of the Lord stands forever. The prophet Isaiah had announced a, a judgment against Israel, a judgment that would fall sometime in the 6th century. A judgment for their sins, a, a, a preview of the, the coming wrath of God. But God says to them, also through the prophet Isaiah, that judgment will not be the last word. I will remain faithful to my promises. I will bring comfort to people and you can know it is true even when you're in the midst of the misery because while the grass fades and while the flowers wither the word of the Lord stands forever it's that same sort of assurance that Jesus is giving his disciples when he when he says it here he says listen all that I have told you is going to unfold you will continue to live in this present evil age. You will continue to experience the, the misery of sin and death. But know for certain that your misery will not have the last word. All that I have said, all that I have said will come to pass. My word will never 
pass away. And it's not the, the main point of the passage, but just think about the implications of that for a moment. Jesus is saying, not the word of the Lord will stand forever, but my word will stand forever. My word is the very word of God. This was something no prophet had ever said. The prophets spoke the word of the Lord to the people. Jesus speaks his word to the people as the very word of God, because that is who he is. He is God come in the flesh, and as God, he says with all of God's authority, this is what the future holds. And he's saying to them, listen, you need to hear my warning. You need to hear my promise. Because it comes to you with the very authority of God. The things that Jesus has told us about the future, they are not the predictions of a market analyst trying to read the signs. Market analysts often get it wrong. It's not the, the prediction of a meteorologist who often gets it wrong. But rather, his words are the very words of God. And that matters. That is of the utmost importance because Jesus is speaking to us about things of eternal significance. Jesus is saying that your eternal destiny, how you will experience that coming day of the Lord, depends entirely on your response to Him now. How you respond to Jesus now will determine your relationship to him for all eternity. And so if you are here this morning and you are not a believer, if you, if you still wonder if all this stuff is true or if it's more like a fairy tale, if you wonder whether you can really trust him, you need to hear Jesus' warning. He is saying to you as clearly as he can say it, listen, there is a day coming when you will be called to account. There is a day coming when God will pour out his wrath on all of his enemies. And it is his love for you that holds back that day. It is his love for you that, that, that allows him to, to not do it now. As Peter tells us, he does not delight in the destruction of the wicked, but he is patient, not wishing that any should perish. It is his grace and his love that holds back that day and says, today is the day of salvation. Therefore, if you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart. Jesus is in effect pleading with the people of Jerusalem and pleading with all of us today through the written words of the gospel. Hear his word, repent and believe today. For today is the day of salvation, but there is a day coming that will be called a day of vengeance. And we do not know when it will come. We do not know when it will arrive. Therefore, let us today hear the gospel and respond with faith. If you've already done that, if you are already a believer, you too need to hear Jesus' words here because there's a promise here for you. You need to hear Jesus say that that day will be for you a day of redemption. That on that day, all his promises will be fulfilled. On that day, his full comfort will be poured out on those who have entrusted themselves to him. You need to know that as you experience the, the trials and the tribulations of this life. You, you need to know that your misery will not have the last word. You, you need to know that he will sustain you and that he will bring you through. Think of the, the words we sang even this morning, words taken from Isaiah 43. 
He says to his people, listen, you will pass through the fires. But when you do, I will be with you and I will bring you through. I will bring you through to that day of salvation. You will pass through the floods. But when you do, they will not overwhelm you. Because I will bring you through. I will get you to that day of salvation. This is Jesus' promise. This is, this is the promise that we, we cling to in the midst of this life. This is the promise that Jesus is, is calling us to stand upon. When he says, listen, trust me. My words will not pass away. If you reject me, there will be wrath. But if you believe in me, if you call upon my name, you will never be put to shame. That's the promise. That's what this text is all about. And that's what makes verse 32 so troubling. Jesus has just told us, my words will, will never pass away. We can stand upon them with absolute certainty. And yet, it is in this very paragraph that people point to Jesus' words and say, see, he didn't know what he was talking about. See, he, he got it wrong. Look with me again at verse 32. Actually, look at verses 29 through 32. He, he tells them this parable of the fig tree. And I think the, the meaning of that is, is clear enough. He says, listen, when you see leaves on the fig tree, you know summer is near. In the same way, when you, when you see these signs that I've been describing, you know that the day I'm talking about has come near. But then in verse 32, he says this, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Why is that a problem? I don't think it's terribly hard to see. You don't have to have a, a degree in, in Greek to understand why that might be problematic. It's, it's problematic because at first glance, it sounds like Jesus is saying that his second coming and the, the final judgment that will accompany it, that all of this will take place before the generation standing before him passes away. And that's a problem because it didn't. It didn't happen. That, that generation passed away a long time ago. It's now some 2,000 years later and the day is still not dawned. And if Jesus got that wrong... How can we believe anything else that he said? Well, I said it's ironic that the passage where Jesus gives us his, his strongest statement concerning the reliability of his word is the very text that people point to to prove that his word is unreliable. So what are we supposed to do with this? How, how, do, we, how do we handle a, a statement like this? Well, of course, there are some who just say, well, Jesus got it wrong. Deal with it. That's not the solution we're going to go with this morning, just in case you're wondering. Of course we believe that, that Jesus' word is true. We, we believe that his words will never pass away. But how do we make sense of such a statement? Well, there's been several solutions proposed. I don't want to get too technical this morning, but allow me to just recount a few of them. There are some who say that, that we have a problem with this statement because we've actually misunderstood the whole thing. Jesus wasn't actually talking about his second coming the whole discourse is actually about the destruction of, of Jerusalem. 
And the coming with, with uh, the coming in a cloud of power and great glory is a, is a sign simply of, of Jesus coming in judgment upon Jerusalem. It wasn't his second coming at all. And so therefore, he was right. These things did actually take place. Just to go on record, that's actually what my dad thinks. So, you know, th- th- you're, you're in good company if you, if you think that this is true. But I'm not persuaded. It's, it's possible, I suppose, but as I've said in previous sermons, the way that that day is described as, as a day of, of judgment upon the whole earth, as a, as a day that affects every person on the planet, seems hard for me to, to read that as a description of the destruction of, of Jerusalem. And so I look for other solutions. Another solution that's been suggested is that the words that Jesus means, that all these things will take place, or have been mistranslated. It doesn't actually mean that all these things will take place, but that all these things will begin to take place. And those who know more about Greek than me say that that is grammatically possible. The, the verb tense that Jesus uses can be read in that way. But it's a very rare usage, and more importantly, it seems to go against the very point of the parable that Jesus has just told It would seem rather strange to say, when you see the leaves on the tree, you know the day is near. And then for the signs to start in the first century and still not be complete 2,000 years later. Seems a strange solution. I'm not persuaded. And so we we continue to, to look at the proposals. A third type of proposal is those who say that when Jesus uses the language of generation... He's not talking about the people of a certain time period, but rather he's talking about people of a certain type. Think of Jesus saying this wicked generation. It doesn't just mean the people who are alive at that particular time, but, but people of a wicked type, fallen mankind. And so it's possible that, that Jesus isn't talking about people of a particular time period, but rather people of a particular type. And this way of reading it has several variations. Some people think he is talking about this wicked generation so that Jesus is saying, listen, the end of history will not come before these things unfold. This wicked generation, this evil age will continue up to the very end. Others think that he's talking about the the Jewish generation saying, listen, the, the Jews will continue. The Jewish people will not fade out of existence until all these things have taken place. Yes, their city will be destroyed, but God will preserve for himself a remnant. So others think that he's talking about his disciples, Christian, the Christian generation, that there will remain Christians on <coughs> earth until the very end. And again, I suppose this is possible, but seems unlikely. Such a usage of the word is rare. In fact, you can't find a single instance where it is used this way in an unambiguous sense in the entire New Testament. And so it seems unlikely that Jesus is talking about people of a certain type and not people of a certain age. When Jesus says generation, he usually means generation. People of a, of a particular time period. And so there is a, another solution that is suggested, and I, it's the one that actually makes the most sense to me. That is those who believe that Jesus, when he says this generation will not pass away, is not talking about the generation that is standing before him, or rather the generation that sees these signs, the ones that sees the leaves on the tree, the generation that sees the leaves on the tree will not pass away until all of the events unfold. He's saying that when the end begins to come, it will come quickly. It will come within a generation. It will not be long and drawn out. 
As I said, that's the, the solution that makes the most sense to me, but, but certainly it's not without its difficulties, and certainly there is no consensus. And so the question is, my, my point this morning is not to persuade you of one of these views. We could, we could have long discussions and, and still not come to any conclusion. I'm not that worried that you read it exactly the way that, that I do, because I'm not even that sure that I'm right. The question is, what do we do? What do we do when we, we come to a text like this that we struggle to understand? Jesus has told us his words will not pass away. They are absolutely certain. And yet here is a place where we wonder, did Jesus get that one right? Did Jesus make a mistake? Certainly the world asks those questions. Certainly if you go to university, you will be challenged with such questions. What are you supposed to do? Let me suggest to you that you begin by assuming that the problem lies with you. If we don't understand how to make sense of a text, it's because we don't understand how to make sense of a text, not because the text itself does not make sense. We are finite. Our, our brains are small. And not only are they small, but they are corrupted by sin. We often prefer to believe that which is untrue, and we will rationalize our way back into a dark corner. It's the nature of our fallen condition. And so when we fail to understand, we begin by humbly acknowledging that the problem lies with us. And once we have acknowledged that the problem lies with us, we should be humble in the way that we hold to our positions. We, we can't help but try to make some sense of it. You, you, will, have to have, you will have to believe something about the text, but you should believe what you believe with humility, humble about what you don't know for sure, giving charity to those who, who disagree, but also holding firmly to what is clear. What is clear is that there is a day coming, a day of, of judgment, a day when God's wrath will be fully revealed, a day when he will take vengeance upon his enemies, a day that for his disciples will be a day of comfort and salvation. That is clear. Believe that. Hold to that with tenacity, even as you lightly hold on to whatever interpretation you prefer. This is the way that we deal with God's word. We, we assume whatever troubles we have are with us. We hold humbly to what we don't know for sure. And we cling with tenacity to what he has made more than abundantly clear. But of course, there's an objection that people raise. People, people fear that this sounds something like intellectual suicide. You're just choosing to believe because you choose to believe. You're, you're turning off your brain. But let me tell you, that's not the case. I want you to hear me say this morning, it is not irrational to trust one who has proven trustworthy when he speaks about things you don't know about. Let me say that again. It is not irrational to trust one who has proven trustworthy when he speaks about things you don't know about. In fact, I would challenge you to consider that this is really the way that almost all of your knowledge works. 
How much of your knowledge did you figure out yourself? How many of the experiments did you actually run? Almost everything you believe, you believe on the testimony of, of someone else who knows more about it than you do. It's the way that human knowledge works. We, we believe those who have proven trustworthy. We, we take them at their word. When a plumber comes into my house, I trust that he knows what he's doing. When an electrician comes into my house, I, I trust that he knows what he is doing. When he tells me what to do, I, I take him at his word, not because I have run the experiments and know, yes, that is actually correct. I have no idea. But I trust the one who has proven trustworthy. So the question is not, are we supposed to turn off our brains? The question is, has God proven trustworthy? Can we trust him when he speaks about things we don't know about? And the answer is a resounding yes. How did the people of, of Isaiah's day know that God was trustworthy? Because they could look at their history and see it. What do you need to know to trust someone? What do you need to know to take God at his word? You need to know two things fundamentally. You need to want know first that he is good and that he is for you. And you need to know secondly that he is powerful and able to do what he intends. And the goodness and, and power of God were on full display at the Exodus. It was at the Exodus that God remembered his promise and said, I will be faithful. I will do what I promised to do. And in faithfulness to his promise and in full display of his intention to work for the good of those whom he had chosen to be his people, he brought them up out of Egypt. And by so doing, he not only proved his goodness and love, but he demonstrated his power as he won a convincing victory of the most powerful army on the face of the earth, casting horse and rider into the sea. God had proven himself trustworthy. And when Jesus says to us, my words will not fail, my words will not pass away, we can take him at his word because he is our new exodus. He came to give his life as a ransom for sinners and in so doing demonstrated his love beyond reasonable doubt. And when he rose again on the third day, he proved he had the power to fulfill all the promises he had made. He won the victory over sin and death. And so the one who was crucified and the one who rose again is trustworthy. We can take him at his word even when we don't know what he's talking about. I can't tell you how to interpret this text for sure. I, I can't tell you what, what view you should adopt, but I can tell you his word will stand. It will not pass away. He is proven trustworthy because he died and he rose again. And because he has risen, because he has risen victorious over sin and death, we can believe him when he says, listen, if you stand against me, that day will be for you a day of darkness. If you stand against me, that day will be for you a day of wrath. But if you will humble yourself, and if you will bow before me as king, and if you will call upon me for salvation, then that day will be a day of comfort. That day will be a day of of redemption. 
that day will be a day of great celebration as we receive the fulfillment of all the good that God has ever promised. And because this is what Jesus says to us, trust me, trust me, and I will not fail you. And because we know that we can, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Pray with me. Father God, we do come before you now humbly acknowledging what we do not know, but clinging firmly to what you have made clear. Father God, grant us grace. Grant us grace to, to stand upon the solid rock of your Son, Jesus Christ. May we not allow the limitations of our finite mind to, to raise false excuses, to, to go our own way and do our own thing, Father. But may we humbly re reject reliance upon our own wisdom, lean not upon our own understanding, but rather in all our ways to acknowledge you, Father, and to receive your Son, whom you put forward as a sacrifice for our sins in the ultimate demonstration of your love. Father God, give us this grace, we pray, in Jesus' name, and for his name's sake. Amen.